the lungs in the worst of COVID patients will sound, for lack of a more technical term, junky. It just sounds like there's uh, there's stuff in there and the air is not moving around. You hear sounds that can be higher pitched or there are sounds we describe as crackling and things popping and, and sort of parts of the lung opening up as somebody takes a deep breath and then collapsing back down as somebody exhales. In a normal lung, you don't hear those kinds of things. Dr. John Marshall heads up the emergency room at a busy hospital in Brooklyn, the Maimonides Medical Center. In the spring of 2020, John had a storm on his hands. At the peak of the COVID epidemic, we had nearly 500 patients admitted with COVID, and I think we maxed out at 170 or so patients on ventilators. And it really did feel like a tidal wave. John is 51. He's been a physician for more than two decades and was previously an Air Force doctor who served in Afghanistan. Hey, it's John. I know I haven't been over there. I'm about to start something else here, but is everything okay with those patients? And I'm working on the discharge for the other guys. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right, call me if you need anything, all right? Bye. Maimonides treated over 10,000 COVID patients in the first six months of the pandemic. We really converted almost every space uh, we had uh, inside into into a hospital space for COVID patients. You know, we took one of our labor and delivery floors and turned that into a COVID unit. We took our surgical wards and turned those into the COVID unit. John and his colleagues soon realized something. Patients who had tested positive for the new virus needed a lot more monitoring than patients with pneumonia or straightforward flu. You know, when this first happened for a lot of hospitals, I, th- I think folks didn't realize what degree of monitoring even the hospitalized patients needed to avoid the precipitous decline uh, we would see in some of these COVID patients. What the pandemic has revealed is that there's probably an opportunity to take patient monitoring to a whole nother level than, than we had ever previously considered. listening to Tectonic. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times and your host for the series. This season, we're exploring how the pandemic is accelerating the transition to a datafied world and changing so many aspects of our lives. This week, we're looking at wearable devices. Around one in five Americans now wear one, and the global wearables market is estimated to be worth more than $80 billion. It's not all about Apple Watches and Fitbits, though. There's a lot of interesting work taking place in the area of clinical-grade wearables, too. The need for social distancing during the pandemic has made many healthcare professionals begin to rethink how to monitor patients. And clinical-grade wearables are at the forefront of these experiments. So how likely is it that these devices could become the diagnostic tools of the future? And what does that mean for healthcare systems? Anna Kushler, the FT's pharma and biotech correspondent, has been covering the pandemic from New York, and she picks up the story from here. So 
So I used to be based in Silicon Valley for five and a half years. And when I moved to start covering healthcare a couple of years ago, I was fascinated with how technology was going to disrupt healthcare. And in particular, wearables, because for a long time, they've been seen as these kind of annoying step counters, you know, for fitness fanatics. But we're just on the edge, I felt, of them being able to capture really useful data that could actually be used by healthcare systems. In Brooklyn's Maimonides Hospital, John Marshall is trying something new. Do I hit record, by the way, now or no? You can hear the ambulances in the background right there, probably. He had a clear problem to solve. COVID patients need intense monitoring. Patients never really like blood pressure cuffs going off every, you know, every 15 minutes. Having stickers on the chest wall that can be certainly be very uncomfortable when they get pulled off. Being attached to wires. Uh, that present, prevent them from getting up and, and moving around uh, the room. So in September, John and the other senior staff began asking patients who had tested positive for COVID-19 to participate in a trial. It was a requirement that the patients didn't display antibodies to the virus. Volunteers were asked to wear this cloth-based device which fitted over their shoulder during their stay at the hospital. For some, that could just be two days, and others, it was up to 28 days. The garment that they're using is called the Simple Sense. It was developed by a New York company called NanoWare, and it was actually originally designed to monitor patients with congestive heart failure. Having something that's close to the patient's skin, that can transmit information wirelessly, can allow them some amount of ability to get up, move around a hospital room, is certainly more comfortable for the patient than what they normally would be wearing. The device embeds sensors into fabric straps, and the patient wears these around their chest and it monitors their heart, lungs and arteries all at the same time. I think the home applications of this technology and other remote monitoring technology, I I think we're really just at the tip of the iceberg for where we're going to end up going with this. The sensors are so tiny that there are billions of them, capturing more than 100 million data points a day for a single patient. The tech took more than a decade to develop. My father, Dr. Vijay Vardhan, he is the inventor of the technology. That's Frank Varadhan, the chief exec of NanoWare, the company that designed and developed the garment. He was doing a lot of defense-related projects on traditional carbon nanotube technology, submarine coding for sonar detection, missile defense systems. And his thesis was, if the nanotechnology with such specificity can pick up signals 50 meters underwater or tens of thousands of feet in the air, what's to stop that specificity from picking up signals directly from the human body? Venk's father, Vijay, couldn't use the carbon nanotube technology for a wearable device because carbon is corrosive and obviously potentially poisonous. Over the next sort of 10 to 15 years, he sort of came up with different sort of iterations of this chemical composition to come up with a cloth-based or a textile-based nanotechnology solution that could pick up these really low frequencies from the body. In terms of cost per unit, Venk said it was in the hundreds of dollars, at least when producing at volume. We are capturing over 120 million data points per patient per day. A smartwatch, for example, only captures up to 5 million data points per day. And that helps us be a much cleaner signal because we're aggregating all of that information. So let's take a step back. What kind of data are you giving to the medical professional then? We give electrical data, hemodynamic data, That's a measurement of blood flow, say within the arteries or the lungs. Acoustic data, 
and metabolic data along with activity. We can do vectors across the largest slice of the lungs that are capturing fluid accumulation or changes in lung capacity across the heart. So cardiac output or the blood flow coming out of the aorta and changes to that, uh, as well as stroke volume. For Venk and John, the doctor in Brooklyn, all of this data can help them to identify patterns and know when a patient's condition is worsening. Whether we're talking about how the lungs move or what the, the acoustic information for the way the lungs sound, whether we're talking about the heart rate, we want to combine the information we get from the remote monitoring garment and combine that with the patient's actual clinical information and use that to drive an algorithm to recognize certain patterns in the information. Or in subsequent iterations, potentially have somebody take this garment and wear it at home. My phone's, I've got to take this phone call for one second. I'll be right back, just a moment. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., So I'm intrigued, Hannah, about how you can integrate the data that's coming off your Fitbit or your other wearables and that of the medical data that is coming out of the emergency room. At the moment, it doesn't really work. So you're right to raise the point. You know, you hear stories of patients printing out data from their Apple Health to bring into doctors and, and doctors, frankly, often not really appreciating it or finding it very useful. Uh, the systems that a lot of hospitals run on are old and, and clunky and they sort of are struggling to keep up with the basic needs of the hospital, let alone integrate this. But that's going to be a big market for whoever can get it right. And how big is that market expected to be? Well, so at the moment, digital health is growing and wearables are a part of that market. There's a huge amount of investment in this. It hit a new high of $8.4 billion in the third quarter of 2020. Big tech companies are also really interested in getting into this, and we can see that. They have this expertise in sensors and data. You saw Google acquiring Fitbit recently, and that is not just for the sort of wellness market. That is because they're thinking further ahead about how to use their expertise to integrate these kinds of different kinds of data. As I was flying from Frankfurt to Norway, I noticed my blood oxygen was unusually low. My heart rate was much, much higher than normal. That's Michael Snyder, the chair of Stanford's medical school. He was an early convert to smart devices, wearing a smartwatch and using a pulse oximeter to read his blood oxygen levels. Then when I landed, I, things, it, it didn't come back to normal. It stayed actually fairly elevated on my heart rate. My blood oxygen stayed low. Later, I got a low-grade fever. I finally went to a doctor in Norway, and I said, look, I, 
may have Lyme disease. Can you check me out? He drew blood and sure enough, my immune cells were up that tell you that you've got something going on, a bacterial infection. 10 days later, Michael flew home to California. Later, I measured, and sure enough, I was lying positive. My blood told me that. And it's perfectly controlled because just before I left, I'd given blood several days and I was negative. These devices first tipped me off before I was even ha had symptoms. And we were able to figure that out from a simple smartwatch and a pulse ox. Michael describes himself as a believer in wearables. I normally use about eight devices every day. So I'm wearing four smartwatches right now. I normally have a ring that's a sensor. I wear something called a continuous glucose monitor that measures my glucose levels. Uh, quite a few he thinks wearables will be particularly important in diseases like COVID, where you can be spreading the virus before you get symptoms. The devices could be an early warning system that you're about to get ill. So when COVID hit in March 2020, he and his team at Stanford started monitoring the heart rate of over 6,000 volunteers using smartwatches. It's a two-part study. The first part is to improve our algorithms to be able to better detect when people are getting ill. And so we got a lot of people in who uh, already had COVID and were wearing a smartwatch, either a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or other devices. And we looked at their data and we saw when they got their symptoms, when they were diagnosed, and we, we perfected our algorithms around resting heart rate initially. We showed that you could detect people getting ill on average four days before they got symptoms. We can see their resting heart rate go up on average. And for some people, it'll be as many as 10 days. The algorithm still needs some work. It can't identify the difference between someone with COVID or another disease. But at least when there was a lot of COVID circulating, it could detect about 70% of confirmed cases. We're now we're trying to bring in other things like respiratory rate, blood oxygen, something called heart rate variability, skin temperature. We, we can measure all these things right from a smartwatch. And we're trying to see what their contribution is to specific health signals, if you will. So if you have a COVID infection, maybe four of the five things I just mentioned will go off so that you can actually see, you know, what kinds of illnesses trigger what kinds of physiological changes. So I think these experiments are fascinating, and I think that they're really setting the stage for how patients could be monitored in the future. But crucially, there's a really long way to go from research to getting wearables actually adopted and regularly used in your local hospital or doctor's office. Health systems aren't using them so much right now because, quite frankly, they're very conservative. It's a new technology. They don't adopt new technologies very well. Uh, and they don't realize their power. I think they're just starting to now thanks to the pandemic unfortunately but telemedicine was really not used very much until the pandemic came along and now the pandemic said people say whoa yeah of course telemedicine's a great way to do things people don't come in and spread their germs around but that was obvious even before the pandemic there was just no reason to change the system and i think that's what's going to be powerful about these wearable devices i think as people realize their power, once you show utility, then they'll spread quickly. So listening there to Michael Snyder, he's saying that the healthcare systems are very conservative. Do you think this crisis has helped them overcome that innate conservatism? 
I think that the money they got during this crisis has helped them overcome that conservatism. And so there are a lot of questions about what would happen if it went away. You know, one of the reasons why telemedicine was suddenly very successful in the US was hospitals started to be reimbursed at the same rates for a virtual visit as they were for an in-person visit. Now, that gets a bit more complicated when it comes to this kind of remote monitoring activity that wouldn't be necessarily a discrete visit. So I think that he's right to raise all these concerns about whether the infrastructure will really adapt quickly enough to make the most of these new technologies. It's important to understand how the US healthcare system works. It's so fragmented that some say it's not a system at all. It gives patients, at least those with insurance, a lot of choice, but then it expects them to shuttle their information between different providers, like a family doctor or a specialist. The key to ensuring wearables work will be making sure the data gets to the right clinician and that someone is willing to pay for it. Doctors will be far more likely to adopt new technologies if health insurance will pay them to do so, and insurers are only going to do this if it's good value for money. The technology for wearables has been evolving so quickly, but integrating that data into the health system has been a little bit slower. That's health economist Catherine Baker. She's the dean of the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. Catherine's research over the years has focused on the effectiveness of public and private health insurance, including the effective reforms on the quality of care. Some of the innovation that we've seen in the U.S. in integrating data and integrating care across settings are from integrated insurers, where the hospital, the doctor, the pharmacist are all part of one system that sees all of the information about a patient and can help bridge those silos. These healthcare systems are far more like what you'd see in countries where the government dominates healthcare, like the U.K., they communicate and can keep all this data inside the same system. And they're also incentivized to save money because they keep the change. But only about a third of Americans are in these schemes. One doctor that they see may not be in communication with the hospital that they go to or another doctor that they see or their mental health provider may not have integrated information with their physical health provider. And that lack of integration of data makes it even harder to integrate information from a novel data source like wearables. So I think it will take a long time to diffuse in the U.S. healthcare system because of the patchwork nature of both providers and insurance. How much is cost an issue? Does health insurance ever cover these kind of data sources? Cost is definitely an issue. And the extent to which health systems can integrate the data to treat patients better I think motivates covering some of that equipment like wearables under health insurance plans. But I think there's increasing evidence that there's an opportunity to use things like wearables to monitor how patients are doing, but also to modify their behaviors in a way that might have health benefits. And if the health benefits accrue over a time frame that the insurer can actually see benefits from, I think we're much more likely to see that equipment covered by insurance premiums. Catherine was right to point out that insurers have a lot of power here. They have the purse strings. So if they incentivize hospitals to do more of this remote monitoring, then they may end up more rapidly adopting it. What would this mean for the cost of patient care, Hannah? 
It could significantly cut it. The average cost of a hospital stay is about $2,000 a day per patient in the US. But the questions are, you know, who actually benefits from saving that money? Will the hospital get to keep some of it, the insurer or the patient themselves? Five months into the wearables trial at the hospital in Brooklyn, we spoke to Dr. John Marshall again. Just letting the hiking go. At that stage, John and his team were continuing to enroll COVID patients in the wearable trial. He said it could take many months before they devise an algorithm from the data. But he did have some other news. The simple sense garment that we're using for this study did just get FDA clearance. And I think that's good news for the wearable market in general. Ultimately, wearable technology is going to radically transform the way we manage people's health chronically. We're thinking about this as, as a way to, to begin to manage, you know, maybe an acute disease or a small set of chronic diseases. But it's easy to imagine this being the method. You know, maybe it's a decade from now, maybe it's 20 years from now, maybe it's only two years from now. I feel very strongly that that's actually going to become the standard of care going forward. The company that developed the garment, NanoWare, is confident that the FDA clearance will mean the device gets covered by Medicare, the US government insurance scheme for seniors. That could make it far more likely to be adopted by health systems. We all know the first computers were massively expensive and have become much cheaper and much faster. Hopefully, you know, as the wearable technology scales up, that'll also be able to become less expensive for the individual patient, less expensive for the healthcare system or the hospital that's providing that wearable technology. Eventually, I believe wearables will transform healthcare. For so long, we have been relying on data collected by technologies that are hundreds of years old. The thermometer was invented 300 years ago, the stethoscope over 200 years ago, the device we use to measure blood pressure over 120 years ago. In the future, doctors tracking data continuously should be able to understand what our bodies look like when they're healthy and how they start to get ill. That could open the door to far more treatments if we catch disease earlier and earlier. Next time on Tectonic, how did Taiwan use technology to stem the spread of COVID-19? The main lesson I would advise is to bring technology to where people are instead of asking people to come to the technology. You've been listening to Tectonic from the Financial Times in London with me, John Thornhill. Our reporter this week was Hannah Kushler. This episode was produced by Liam Noland. Sound design and mixing was by Breen Turner and Louise Burton, and we had help from Persis Love. Amy Keane was the editor and the executive producer, Cheryl Brumley. Original music was composed by Metaphor Music. Our thanks to Dr. Ali Rezi, Harpreet Rai, Dr. Bill Marks, Petri Holman, and Kayla Alexander for their insight during recording.